yes, we put our faith in God absolutely 100%, but we also recognize that God gave us some sense. My name is Matt. Joining me today are our friends Karen. Good morning. And Amy. And Amy. <laughs> and Tracy. Good morning. <laughs> what happened to Amy? I don't know. She's around somewhere. We'll see if Amy. I don't know. Maybe she's having some struggles with her, with her uh, connection there. I don't know because she's not muted. At any rate, we. Uh, <laughs> we are all three here. Good morning. There she is. <laughs> Don't know what happened. <laughs> Let's try that again. And Amy. Are you serious? You can't hear me? I can't no. now. We couldn't. No. <laughs> You've been you kind of coming in and out. I don't know what's going on. Oh, but uh, yeah. So anyway, we'll see what happens with that. Um, but I was, uh, I was. Can I you was... hear me now? Now I can hear you. Do I? Should I start over? Are you? I I think we just keep losing Amy. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong. Like everything's too There you sound no, okay sound now. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't moved at all since we were talking. Previously. Yeah. No, I don't know. You just completely cut out there for a minute. Let me try this whole thing over. <laughs> we'll start again. We'll try this again. Okay, before you start, do, am I clear? Yeah. You sound good now. You sound good now. I don't know. Okay. okay. Let's try this again. Let me start this over. Okay. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Cutting room floor. <laughs> Oh, hello. This is the Adventure Through the Bible podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today is Karen. Oh, come on. Just kidding. That was just being funny. Good morning. <laughs> <laughs> and Amy. Hello. And Tracy. Good morning. <laughs> oh, for our listeners, we've... <laughs> We immediately started having some troubles. We couldn't hear Amy for some reason. <laughs> oh, just leave it in there. It only took a few minutes. It's quite fun. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, uh, Karen decides to be a smart aleck. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> 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 oh, the the joys of technology and and the way it makes our lives easier, right? For the moment, we can all hear each other, and hopefully, it will remain that way. <laughs> Yay! Yay! Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I was just—I was telling uh, telling my fellow podcasters here that uh, we have some additions in my household. We got two new puppies yesterday, which is what happens when you tell your wife, "I don't really want to take care of dogs, but if you want one, we can get one." And then what happens is you end up with two. So. <laughs> But they are they are just cute little bundles of fur. They're um, Lhasa, Apsa, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, Poodle, Yorkie mixes. And so they're just little little, little furry cuties. So anyway, that's going to be fun, having, having some new little mouths to feed in the house and take care of. And 
those those little additions are always fun. It's been a while since we've had dogs in my house. So we used to have a border collie. I, I grew up. I've grown up with dogs. It's actually been very little parts of my life that I haven't had dogs. So it'll be it'll be fun to uh, to have little ones around again. And, and uh, Amy is going to be our vet. They they are adorable. So I was texting Shannon last night and calling her in her excitement. <laughs> oh, she is so excited. It, which They're is really not like, wonderful. yeah, this is not like my wife to be so excited about dogs. She's not a huge animal person, but it was her idea to do it. And, uh, and uh, she was just super excited about getting these dogs. Yay. And so, yeah. So it's a, it's, it's fun. And the boys, the boys are excited too. And uh, yeah, they're just, they're cute and so far quiet. And they're just, uh, in fact, they're just sleeping right now. So I was a little worried that we were going to be up all night with little, little uh, whiny dogs, but they just, they just cuddled up together and that's where they are. So fun, fun, fun. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. You probably would have had more whining if you only got one of them. That yep. was part of there what, yeah. been separation anxiety and stuff like that. Yeah. And they have somebody, so yeah, that was part of our reason of taking too, because we were just looking at him. It was like, oh, we can't choose, and we really don't want to separate them. So we said, well, you know what? They're small; they're not going to eat much. And all we had to pay for was the shots and stuff. And so um, it was, it was like next to nothing. And so, well, okay, let's uh, let's just go ahead and take two. It'll be fun. So, it so we almost have almost always works out better if there's two. Yeah, yeah, and uh, as it turns out, I ended up naming both of them. We named them Wicket and Willow. Which is adorable. <laughs> and uh, as my, my fellow nerd on the, uh, on the podcast might, might recognize, those are both uh, Lucasfilm names. I snuck them in on my wife, so. <laughs> <laughs> I love Willow. <laughs> all righty well it was wonderful <laughs> I, well and there's a just so if here, here's the plug <laughs> sponsored by disney uh there's a there's <laughs> going to be a willow tv show on on disney plus so um hey that has absolutely nothing to do with why we're here to talk today <laughs> so how about we we'll get away from my nerddom here for a moment and uh let's get back into the book of ezra our listeners may recall that we started the book of Ezra. Holy smokes. It feels like about five years ago. We've only been doing the podcast for close to two, but you know, we, we started Ezra a long, long time ago, several, several weeks ago. And then we, we went through the book of Haggai and Zechariah and Esther. And now we find ourselves back in Ezra. And so but it seems I, like it's that overlap. It's that seven year exile that we just, we're knee deep in still. Yeah, that 70 year exile, which we don't actually hear a whole lot about the exile itself, but more after the exile, because because now because yeah. mm-hmm, now with Ezra. So so the review would be that in the book of Ezra, the Israelites were allowed to go back to Jerusalem, or at least some were allowed to go back. And that first part of Ezra is specifically about them going back to rebuild the temple. And so, so the first few chapters of Ezra are accounting or are recounting, I should say, that story of rebuilding the temple. And then as we got into those other books, then there were prophets who were counseling the people at the time because 
you might recall, they started to drag their feet on building the temple and they were starting to already slip into uh, some bad habits and whatnot. And then we get back to Ezra. You know, I think it was um, yesterday you did a sermon at church about that and you popped up a picture of of the temple. And Mm -hmm. me and my son were sitting there going, that literally just seems like it almost just surrounded the temple itself. There was that little bit of a, you know, uh, towards the bottom there that the there were houses and buildings. But I was like, I wonder if that's how it was before the exile or it was bigger and it encamped, you know, the whole city and more houses and more of the people. But there was not a lot of, how do you say, gate or wall. Yeah, but it was less than I imagined. Yeah, well, the temple itself, we know, was much smaller. And, of course, they had less people to work on things. So you can uh, assume that there were probably some corners cut, you know, for for that rebuilding. Yeah, that struck me, too. I was sitting with a friend and she and I were both like, wow, look how small the city is compared to the the temple itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How many people were literally outside the wall still? Because there were structures outside. And you're thinking, you know, they had so many people that wanted to to see them fail and we're against them. And it's like all those people living outside the gate were kind of, you know, prime pickings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for our listeners, uh, we'll be getting into this next week, actually, because I yesterday I did a sermon on the first half of the book of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the wall around the city or more like Tracy is saying, it seems like more around the temple than anything. Um, and if I'm being 100 percent honest, I had nothing to do with that slide. My my wife put the slides together for me and I had no idea what was going to be up there. But I did. I did happen to see that slide there at the end because they're you know, the slides are coming up behind me while I'm talking. And and she was just keeping track and, and uh, keeping the slides going for me. But um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting to see how small that was. Well, yeah. And, you know, when we were talking in the first part of Ezra, I remember you know, we're talking about how small the temple was compared to um, what we think of as Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple seems like it was huge and, and uh, you know, so uh, ornate. And then, you know, in the first part of Ezra, when they're starting to rebuild, you know, it talks literally about how some of the people wept because when they saw the new foundation, it was, it was just going to be you know, and like practically nothing compared to what they had known before from 70 years before, you know, I suppose the 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 difference in what they had had versus what they now had probably was sort of a, a bit of a slap in the face to them as a reminder of what they had lost. Because it seems like a lot of what had been driving them to have their pride in their city at the time and the temple was less of a devotion to God and more of just a pride, just more of a national pride. Uh, Cause as we saw with the old temple, it was so much about, well, they just kept, they kept abusing it. They kept abusing the temple, but yet at the same time, they kept seeming to claim this affiliate uh, affiliation with God, but it was simply because of the temple. And uh, so you know, with the exile, we saw that all taken away, literally, you know, broken down, and now they're rebuilding. So, yeah, we're in a very different era. Well, sort of a different era. We're going to see that some things 
didn't quite get uh, weeded out with the exile. Now, something I hadn't noticed in the first part of the book of Ezra was that we hadn't really even met Ezra at that point. And so as we begin our reading for this uh, for, for this episode, we actually finally get introduced to Ezra and we start with his genealogy. And we find that Ezra is a direct descendant of uh, Aaron, Moses's brother. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Of course, I've always interested in the the to some degree, I'm interested in some of those genealogies of the way they were able to track their 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 ancestry to know exactly you know who they had been related to and back to which historical figures. I mean, I, I think they just memorized it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. They had to as many times as they were conquered. Well, well, you know, yeah. And I guess that is a that's kind of an important thing for a for a, a a nation to be able to retain its national pride the way it does and you know how they had been conquered. You know, you think of you know, they had been taken away to Egypt, come out of Egypt, be you know, start to create or build up the the nation of Israel as we think of it today. And yet they had managed to maintain uh, that that connection to their ancestry and their and their uh, their history. Yeah, I think the oral tradition is very fascinating, especially in light of the fact that probably Jochebed gave that information to Moses. And so Moses records a tremendous amount of information, which was probably given to him by his parents. And they're in a slave situation. So it is remarkable. Yeah, and so we find Ezra being this direct descendant of Aaron, and you know, several generations. I just, I don't know. I just, I always find, I always find that just a little bit interesting how they're able to do that because I, actually, I don't even know my great grandparents' name to be names. To be honest with you, I, uh, I know I have great grandparents. I know, I know that on my dad's side they came from, uh, they were Germans from Russia. That's about it. That's all I know. My mom's side. I don't really know much, uh, much beyond that, but beyond them either. So I really only know my genealogy as far back as my own grandparents. So it is it's just interesting to me for people to be able to to read their genealogy back and, and know it to that degree. Uh, now, verse 10, it says Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. So as I was reading that, it's like, oh, okay. Ezra is, he's kind of like a, he's a pastor. He's somebody who is specific. He's specifically decided that he wants to do this. He wants to, uh, to teach it. Verse six says that he was a ready scribe, which mm-hmm. implies that he's very talented, that he's uh, a professional. He's somebody who really knows the word of the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, which is, you know, that is important. It's, you have to, you have to know the word to be able to, to teach it. It can't, it can't be um, a lot of, I think this, and I think that, and I heard this, and, and, and I sort of think that this is a thing, you know, and I know that we, we all get into some of that to some degree. And I suppose even here on the podcast, we have gotten to that to some degree, but there has to be there has to be a rooting of yourself in the word to be able to to teach it. Well, so the re- that ready scribe that must be King James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 
So New King James says he was a, a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. Mm -hmm. Which is interesting because the law of Moses was already written. So what does that mean, right? And then NIV says he was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses. You know what I mean? Like, what was he, you know, I, th I think of a scribe as somebody who's writing down things that happened accurately, but the law of Moses already existed and was complete. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, it contains other components as well. You know, I wonder if he was, like, in charge of, like, making copies and prints or whatever for, you know, it's other possible. copy-ups. It's possible. Well, it you says in a couple of verses, in verse 10, it says, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. Mm -hmm. So, he's a teacher. Right. Right. Amen. And whether he gained that knowledge by scribing copies, I don't know. But mm. he's a teacher. What what I always find interesting is that in the New Testament, it's the scribes who readily follow Jesus. And so you find um, Jesus having these, you know, somewhat negative, well, very negative interactions with the Sadducees, uh, very tense relationships with the Pharisees. And scribes come and ask him detailed questions, and they often go away converted, which means they are deep in the word. And I, yeah. I find that really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, I actually learned something this morning as I was looking through some things. Um, it is actually suspected that whoever wrote Ezra, and I don't know, I, I'm assuming it was Ezra, but I don't know. But whoever wrote Ezra most likely also wrote First and Second Chronicles. Um, because in, in part, you know, when you read the very end of Chronicles and you read the very beginning of Ezra, it's verbatim. It's practically verbatim with mm -hmm. each other. And so oh. and and also Nehemiah. Nehemiah was originally called second Ezra, or second Ezra. Um, and so if Ezra was the one uh, writing the Chronicles, uh, you could see how he would be pretty well versed in knowing uh, what had been going on and probably uh, pretty deep into the into the law. Yeah, I, I read something that said that, you know, basically he writes this first portion of the book, uh, chapters one through six, and then he's got 58 years when we don't know what he's doing. And then he comes back to Jerusalem. And so he's he may have had time to write Chronicles during that time. Yeah, maybe. Which certainly explains on the chronological read through of the Bible that we're doing why we took a break. Well, yeah, right? there was there was a lot going on because um, as you read, you know, I, I, if I recall in those first few chapters of of uh, Ezra, I think, yeah, there was talk about Zechariah and Nehemiah. And so all these guys were kind of contemporaries of going on things going on at the same time. Yeah. So, so you know, there's just a lot. There was a lot happening all at once here. Um, I've. I, just been very interested to find out how how so many of these books all are happening at the same time at this uh, at this return uh, to the to the area. I think that's almost a given, though. You know, when you look at that, you know, we we've read what led up to the 70 years and how they were kind of being prepped for it to the actual 70 years to the transition of going back and all the different circumstances. So I, you know, I bet it was 
I bet it was, you know, just a little bit of, God, if it's actually a thing, controlled chaos, mm-hmm. you know, of of just trying to get it done and people coming up against them. Yeah. I like verse 10. It says, for Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it. And the commentary says, uh, he prepared his heart. He was a consecrated man. His aim and ambition in life was to know the will of God and teach it to the people. Isn't that awesome? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, yes. <laughs> well said, Matt. <clears throat> <laughs> so it would seem, though, at this point that Ezra actually hadn't even been there yet. What we had read in Ezra before was a recounting of uh, of the rebuilding of the temple, which, from what I can see, Ezra really didn't have any part in. It was mostly... Uh, Zechariah more than anybody, I think, who was who was there telling everybody, hey, you need to get back back and get get this done. And then Ezra, you know, when Ezra shows up, his mission, or at least as it's recounted in these last few chapters, is uh, is rather different as um, the chapter goes on. And it's talking about the permission given to Israelites to go to Jerusalem. So it seems like they were kind of allowed to go in stages you know first they were allowed to go back and rebuild the temple and you know we'll read next week in nehemiah he was allowed to go back to rebuild the wall uh seems like some of this stuff happened before these last few chapters though the chapter talks about permission for some of for for israelites to go to jerusalem if they want so there's a couple of you know, Ezra could be a boring book. Ezra could be this book that's like, yeah, there's a lot of details about other people's genealogy. Um, but it's super important in the history of Israel and because of the fact that it pertains to the uh, prophecies. So when we read Daniel, you know, Daniel 8.14 talks about the timing of the judgment and Daniel 9 Uh, verses 25 and 26 talk about the beginning of the 2300 day prophecy and the timing of the coming of the Messiah. And they both refer back to whenever Ezra gets the word to go rebuild the temple. And so Mm -hmm. while it's like super detailed and maybe a little bit boring, it also matters in the grand history of the great battle between Christ and Satan or the great war between Christ and Satan, because, you know, Jesus tells us the timing. He gives us a clue in the book of Ezra about the fact that it will all start in 457 BC. And then these, these prophecies suddenly become able to be interpreted. Yeah. There's so much that happens right now that is, imp- I think it matters. It is important. Yeah. <laughs> It does matter. It really does matter. Uh, and these, I think these are the reasons why some of these things are included in Scripture. When even, you know, right on the surface, some of the things, they don't have very particular uh, spiritual significance that you can read. You know, when you're like looking at genealogies and things like that, but yet they do give us that that historical context where, uh, you know, somebody with the ability is able to dig in and give a, you know, give a time frame for these things. And so, you know, when you start dealing with these time prophecies uh, and can say it's right here in this book mm-hmm. where that happened. Yeah, it's very important. But so they're they're given permission by Artaxerxes. Right. I continue to be amazed at the way the king 
the king and kings of Persia allowed and actually seems to seem to have supported the Jews in their in their religion, because not only does he say, sure, you can go back, but he gives them gold and silver and, you know, they get some of the things for the temple to take. We'll flip the bill. Yeah, yeah, they'll foot the yeah, bill. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, tells them specifically. And this is the king. This is in a letter from the king. Specifically says to buy animals and grain and drink for offerings. And then he says, whatever, you know, whatever you have left over, says it's, you know, you can do at your discretion. He says, at the will of your God. Now, so that, I mean, that sort of tells me that Artaxerxes isn't necessarily claiming God as his God, but is still showing a respect uh, for the religion and potentially for God. You know, it goes on to talk about how other needs are going to be paid from the king's treasury. And there's even decree from the treasurers from what he says, the region beyond the river. They're going to be supposed to be supplying needs to Ezra. And so it's it's just fascinating to me how much this king of Persia, Artaxerxes, is putting out there for these people to re, rebuild themselves, rebuild the 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 articles of their faith. You know, is he hedging his bets? It seems like probably because, uh, you know, he way he puts it, he says, for why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Possibly he recognizes that there's some power there in God. You can only imagine that he's probably heard some of the stories of the Babylonian kings. I mean, if he heard of, uh, you know, Darius and, and some of his things going on and some of those other so those other kings and the way that they had interactions with God, you can only imagine that if there were things being written like we read in uh, Esther, these chronicles being, you know, of, the, of these kings being put down, that they probably had, he probably had some historical context of how, how God had been working uh, in that area. One of the things I read, and I can't find it right now, but it was saying that, you know, the Persian kings were uh, Zoroastrian, or they practice Zoroastrianism. I can't even say yes. the word. Um, yes. But that they were very uh, humane, and that they would, uh, like they were, uh, what's the word we use now, like very tolerant of other religions, and even affirmed people in their local religions. And so they are unique in history in that they didn't come in and crush all these other religions. They said, oh, you want to practice that religion? That's cool. Here's some money. <laughs> that is very unique. It is. Yeah, it's very, yeah, it is interesting. Well, you know, and I think we think of it, I'm thinking of it largely in terms of, you know, United States separation of church and state. I mean, the idea of the church being supported by the government, first of all, no, thank you. I don't want the government having anything to do with my with my religion. But just the idea right. of the government putting out money for something like that is uh, outside of the realm of of what seems rational or likely in my mind. You know, but with that religion, wasn't there a little bit of, well, roots in um, Balaam? Of the Zoroastrianism? Yeah, I thought I read back somewhere that that's kind of where it derived from. But then you have that, that, you know, he was used by God too and, you know, changed along the way. But still, there's some ties there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a good show of how God can use whatever he wants to use. Yeah, the, Zor the Zoroastrian religion was very, very old, and um, that was certainly not invented by the Persians. But ba um, Balaam, yes, Balaam sort of, 
he had times when he was a prophet for God and he followed that. And then he also had times when he practiced that religion. I really don't know what to call the religion. Zoroastrianism? Yeah, that's it. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, that was definitely him. And it was, and his writings were what the wise men were reading that pointed that's how the wise men were studying Hebrew prophecy is because Balaam straddled the two. Yeah. And that's a good, that's and a good choice of words, straddle. Yeah. He specifically like wrote about, Balaam specifically wrote prophecies about the Christ child's birth. Yeah. Well, that is fascinating. And, you know, here in a few weeks, we'll be talking about. Uh, those wise men. So, so that's interesting, though, because then when we, you know, when we talk about when we talk about the wise men coming from the east in the Christmas story, in my mind, I've always thought of like China and India and that kind of thing. But maybe it's not quite so far east. Maybe we're more talking, um, you know, Persian Empire kind of stuff with um, uh, Susa and 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 that. I wonder. I don't know because it just says from the east. It doesn't say how far east. So it talks about how there's no no taxes. See, this is, the, you know, it's more more support coming from Artaxerxes. No taxes imposed on temple workers. Judges specifically. This is still all from this letter from Artaxerxes. Judges are to be set with knowledge of God's law. And anyone who doesn't observe the law of God and the king is supposed to be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or prison. I mean, any one of those things. And so... Uh, so it's just very interesting for this to come down from this king of Persia, who is not a Jew, who does not, te- you know, necessarily seem to be, you know, a great advocate for for the Jewish religion. Yet he is very supportive of them doing it, at least in their area. I have always understood that the reason the Magi knew anything about the coming of the Messiah was that they had known Daniel. Hmm. You know, it's it's like generations later, but but you know, the presence of an individual who knew the Jewish prophecies would have influenced their thinking. Yeah. So they knew you mean the prophet or the book of Daniel, not Daniel the person personally, obviously not. Because right, right, right. Hun- hundreds, yeah. hundreds of years of difference. Yeah. Hundreds of years, right. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it, it is interesting. I I am just fascinated by how much everything is connected. Through through things and how you're how we see the threads through the history of Israel and the Old Testament leading up to the New Testament and the coming of Jesus. It's all fascinating. Okay, well, as we get into uh, chapter eight, um, it begins with some genealogies, which we're not you know, we don't really have any reason for our purposes here to go through those genealogies other than, like we said, how it is a you know it's a real indication of how they managed to keep track of their history and how it gives us those those pinpoints in history that we can refer to in other parts of the bible uh now verse 15 i thought was very interesting because he says i looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of levi there do you think this was like a departure from the law of moses because only the Levites were supposed to be priests. So how does this work? I mean, it would seem to me like like there has been some departure from that. Did you mm. catch that? Am I am I off base on that? 
I have that too where, where you know what, maybe during the exile they kind of went I would I don't want to say went away, but that wasn't the hard and fast rule, maybe. Maybe. You know, because um there was something else I read there too that that there was a little bit of complacency, just like you know, when leaving Egypt, it was like, you know what, maybe we need to go back. Maybe it was better there, you mm-hmm. know, where it was now, okay, after 70 years, did everybody want to go back at the same time? Or were there reservations, you know, by some to say, well, maybe this isn't so bad? Yeah. Well, we saw that not everybody went back. You know, when we're reading yeah. the book of Esther, you know, that was that was after people had been allowed to go back to rebuild the temple. And clearly they didn't all because one of them became queen of, of Persia. So, yeah, that's I don't know. Yeah, there's well, you know, I mean, we're seeing a we're seeing a change in generation, a whole different generation. So you're having people born and grow up who are part of a culture that is completely separated from their geo- geographical uh, location and all the pride of the area that they had had, you know, they had the pride of the temple in Jerusalem, um, you know, and I think the Jewish people large part today, even still the ones who remain devoutly Jewish, even if they're not particularly religious and even the religious ones, like we've talked about here, a lot of, a lot of Jews are actually atheists, but they still really hold to that, um, to that pride of of their past of their of their heritage and and so so yeah i guess you know 70 years of exile and when they're coming back and they're trying to do the best they can you know i mean how many of them had been those scribes like Ezra how many of them had been specifically trying to maintain the religion it's uh it's an interesting question and so for to find uh, priests that aren't levites Maybe we shouldn't be terribly surprised by it, and certainly maybe not terribly judgmental of it, because there's just people who are trying to do, who are trying to do something, trying to do the best they can. Yeah, Ezra says he sends for some specific men, if I remember right, he names them, um, but he calls them men of understanding, and so he he seems to know, you know, some, he probably has some connection with some guys that are there, and remembers that they, you know, also had been studying, and knew a little something about uh, the law and, and uh, what the people needed to be doing and, uh, you know, brings some people to be servants for the house of God. They go into a little bit of fasting and prayer They uh, as they're seeking the right way to go. Ezra specifically says that he didn't want to ask for an escort from the king because God had told him the hand of our God or Ezra had told the, uh, sorry. Oh, sorry, Amy, go ahead. Well, no, I was just going to say exactly what you were saying. I found these verses really interesting. So I proclaimed a fast by the river and we afflicted ourselves before God um, and we prayed for God to do what is right by us and our little ones, which was interesting. Um, For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy. For we had told the king that our God, the hand of our God was upon us. And so he's like, we can't just be going and asking for political military help um, when we've told this guy that God's going to protect us. I thought that was super, super interesting. Mm-hmm. I like, yeah, I like how Ezra, you know, sticks to his guns because 
Yep. You know, if you look at, uh, I don't remember, was Ezra in Babylon or was he in, well, either way, I mean, it's a long way to walk from either, either Babylon or Susa because Susa or Shushan, depending on which book you happen to be reading at the time was the capital of Persia, Babylon, of course, or Babylon had been the capital of Babylonia. And I think it was slightly closer. Shushan was a little bit further East. Uh, Shushan, I think was around 800 miles or so from what I remember looking at the map and, and Babylon, you know, wasn't a whole lot less than that, but that's a long way to walk carrying a bunch of gold and 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 stuff that if anybody knows you've got it you're going to be a target i mean and and to say no thank you our god's got us we're not going to need protection and to stick to those guns the whole way because you're trying to save not save face for yourself but remain yeah remain faithful to god that is a big step of faith to re- to rely on that and and not ask for that for that extra protection. You know, I suppose there were times when God probably would have said, yeah, take soldiers with you. And it would seem like mm-hmm. this time God just said, go. And Ezra said, okay, I'm going to go. You know, we get some, uh, all, the, all those gifts for the temple. And we're told that he divided them up amongst 12 leaders of the priests for safekeeping. Was this a, I, I guess it was largely for, you know, safety and numbers type of thing let's let's divide it up so that one person doesn't have all of it i suppose maybe just in case something does happen uh it doesn't all get lost and that's just left for safekeeping until they get back to the temple yeah so then verse 31 says so we departed from the river and we traveled for 12 days um oh no on the 12th day of the first month um and we went on our way to jerusalem and the hand of our god was upon us and he delivered us from the hands of our enemies um such as might be laying in wait for us along the way so god does honor his faith mhm absolutely absolutely yeah it's uh yeah yeah you can see you can see that this was supposed to happen this is this is god's hand in this protecting them mm-hmm. because we don't even get any indication that anybody tried to attack them on the road back, which to me is rather fascinating, like I said, considering how much of this stuff they were carrying. And it couldn't have been a secret. I mean, I guess it could have been a secret, but you're going to see probably a fairly large company of people on the road. If you have any indication that they're carrying this stuff there, that's 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 just like, <laughs> you know, bait practically. You know, I think it's I think you said this yesterday during your sermon. It's like, you know, you could pray for guidance and and uh deliverance and help and everything but you have to be vigilant too Mm -hmm. you have to do your due diligence and and they show it here by saying yes we trust in the lord and yes we're stepping out on this journey but we're also not going to put all the gold in one person's hand and make Mm -hmm. it a a snatch and grab here let's spread it around yeah case we do have to fight at some point yeah Yes, we put our faith in God absolutely 100%, but we also recognize that God gave us some sense and we should use that we should use that sense to to, you know, not not just do stupid things because we're counting on God to bail us out if we if we screw up. Um which of course, you know, I think he will bail us out if we screw up, but but you know, there is some uh there is he, he, let's he, not make it easy pickings. Yeah, let's not make it easy pickings. Yeah. Let's there's let's not be uh, unreasonably um, flippant about 
our our position. Um, you know, how right. does it be put? Wise, you know, pray for wisdom and then be wise. There's the there's the phrase, the common phrase. It's not in the Bible, of course, but you know, use the good sense that God gave you. You know, um, he 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 gives us he gives us the ability to think and reason. Um, you know, which I suppose is part of being in the image of God. You know, so so you know, just you know, yes, pray and mm-hmm. and pray and act wisely. So yeah, they divide that up until they get back to the temple, and then it's all counted out, and and um, uh, and, and and everything seems to be just fine. We're told, well, you know, we are told that uh, they give are given some protection from God on the road. The hand of our God was upon us, and He delivered us yeah. from the hands of our enemies. That's it. That's it. Yep. Delivered us from the hands of our enemies. So I don't know. I mean, I guess obviously they must have felt some danger because they felt the need to split these things up. Uh, we are told that God delivered them, and so, but it, it it seems like they knew the danger was around, but it just never really ever got to them. Um, the commentary talks about the fact that Xenophon records that at minimum it was a ninety-one day journey, um, and so it you know, it really was a very long distance. And of course, if you're traveling with that much gold, you're going to have people trying to attack you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy. You guys talking about that four month journey he made? I think it was wild. It just stands to reason. There's going to be people who are very interested in, in, uh, in, in that gold. They delivered all the gold and silver and the articles to the temple. They had it recorded, weighed and recorded. Uh, they made some sacrifices it says sacrifices by the children of those who had been carried away captive. Uh, so I would take this to be largely, mostly, and I suppose mostly everybody who went quote unquote back probably were descendants of the people who had been taken away. And so there were, these were probably people who had been born in uh, the Persian Empire and not uh, born in Jerusalem and and actually coming back. It was quite a bit, too. Mm-hmm. It was 12 bulls. Uh, 96 rams, 77 lambs, 12 male goats as a sin offering. Yeah, well, and you know, if you consider they probably, I, I probably not probably, probably it's definitely were not, well, I don't know, I can't say that for sure, but most likely were not doing sacrifices while they had been carried away because the sacrifices were supposed to be done at the temple, which is always something that's very interesting to me, even modern day as the Jews are spread all around the world and there is no temple and they have no sacrificial system right now. I don't understand. I just don't understand how they, how they, uh, you know, maintain their religion without that, because that was like a central part of it to, in my mind, it was the sacrifices. But so, you know, with them having been gone for so long coming back, it sort of makes sense to me that you would have a big, uh, that you would have a big uh, sacrifice ceremony there. Uh, we get some support from the satraps and governors of the region. Of course, this was on the king's orders because he had told them to, which again is uh, very interesting that uh, that they were getting this government support for the religion. Now, when we get into chapter nine, this this seems to be like the biggest part of Ezra's mission. Uh, in Jerusalem, because he really wasn't involved with the building of the temple. Well, I don't get, I don't see that he was really involved a lot with the building of the wall. He wasn't there for that purpose. Um, but where he seems to take the biggest role now begins in chapter nine in 
having to deal with the fact that these guys, these people have intermarried with people of the area. I don't know how much time has passed since his arrival in Jerusalem and, and this next chapter, or if this is dealing with people who had come back. But what has happened is the men of the Jewish men have taken wives from surrounding regions, which was forbidden by the law no, of Moses. No. What? Did I, I miss something? <laughs> oh, a no-no. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, big no-no. They weren't supposed, I mean, this was Law of Moses stuff. They weren't supposed to have done this, you know, from long ago. And they had been doing it before the before the uh, exile. And it seems like maybe they had continued through the exile and maybe even had continued after the exile. Yeah, and it wasn't like a thing just entirely about like racial purity or anything weird like that. It was right. It was because these foreign wives would always lead them into idolatry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the whole point. They were supposed to separate themselves from the other people of the region. And it wasn't simply an us and them. It was about it was about uh, religious purity. Exactly. Wow. Very rarely in the text do we find um, the the woman being led into the practice of the Israelite religion. Instead, what we find is the man being led into the practice of idolatry. Mm hmm. Yeah, and it says, uh, let me see, I got to make sure I wrote this down right. It says that Nehemiah was astonished at this. Um, who we really haven't met Nehemiah yet, or at least not 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 in a in a in a broad sense. We'll talk more about him next week. But um, and when I read that, when it says Nehemiah was astonished, my first thought is, well, so am I, because this is part of the reason they had been carried away. And boom, exactly. And, and there's still doing it um it's like do these people ever learn um and of course you know looking at it at hindsight and we you know we can point our fingers all the time and you know i guess how often do we actually learn um but uh, but yeah that astonishment i was like yeah i'm astonished too how are they how and why are they still doing this i tore my clothes and i ripped out the hair of my beard he says oh yeah i don't keep much yeah. of a beard but that just sounds terrible <laughs> yeah, that's terrible <laughs> um yeah he uh uh ezra i think it is ezra right ezra has a prayer where he is confessing um confessing that god's people are already falling back into the old practice that had gotten them carried off to babylon uh he says they had forsaken the commandments that were supposed to keep them clean it was supposed to keep them from from these impurities of the surrounding lands I mean, all this idolatry, this, this is why idolatry was coming in to begin with. It started with Solomon. When Solomon started intermarrying with these people all around, with his however many wives and concubines, that was when we started seeing immediately these, these outside influences coming in and watering down the religion, changing everything up and, and uh, creating problems. It was a huge deal for Ahab and Jezebel. Like Jezebel completely ran the country. There were priests of her gods living in the court. Well, yeah, I mean, that you know, her, yeah, her, you know, them living in the court. Um, we had seen that there were sacrifices being made to these other gods in the temple, you know, so uh, the, it, it had become so impure that 
God literally had to have that temple knocked down because it it wasn't representing what it was supposed to anymore. And now we have a new temple and we're already starting to creep back towards the old to the old stuff. I, I was thinking I love this prayer um, because he says, I'm ashamed and I blush to lift up my face to my God. So that is um, that is something I've felt. You know, my own sins are embarrassing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um And then he goes on to say, you know, these iniquities have gone on and on among our people. And for this little space, grace has been showed to us from our God. That's it's in the King James. And I think that's super, super cool because he says we have a moment in time, a place in God's plan if we will choose to follow. Uh, Mm -hmm. Verse eight to me is is sort of seminal to this whole story. He's telling the people stop this. We've already gone into the, the exile. We've come home. Stop. And God is being gracious unto us. So let's follow him. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. is literally like a repeat of what we've seen since the exile um, from Egypt. It's like we just continue to hear the same. If we do this, then this will happen. Follow him. Come back. You know, I think it's just like Matt said, it's here we go again. Yeah. I wonder why we don't hear about is Israelite women intermarrying. Is it because, is it just that, was it not happening? Is it because this is patriarchal and women go where they're told and men go where they want? Like, what is this? You know what I mean? Like, this is strange. That would be my suspicion, of course, not having lived there. But it seems like it doesn't seem like women so much got to choose who they were going to marry. It seems like a lot of times it was arranged, you know, yeah. through the through the fathers. You have to. Yeah, you have to do what you're told. And then, you know, your brother mm-hmm. gets to, you know, whatever. Yeah. Which, you know, obviously that sounds that doesn't sound like an ideal situation for women. It's just but it is what it was, you know. And so that's probably probably why i would imagine i can only imagine there had to have been some inter intermingling that way as well because you know we're only hearing about the parts that specifically are um dealing you know with with is you know the israel culture and and the way that they're relating to uh god's law at the time but you know those those Oh, what what word do I want to use? The, you know, those few times that women probably went with men from outside the culture, it probably is just not as significant uh, to the storyline, I guess. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, my guess would be that because of the patriarchal nature of it, that women just really didn't have the opportunity to make those choices for themselves. But notice how many times in the scripture, and I'm I'm sure we've talked about this before, but how many times does the Bible say, and she led him into adultery? I mean, not adultery. Uh, she led him into idolatry. Mm-hmm. And then also over and over again in both First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it names the name of the mother. And so someone will do evil and it will say, and his mother was, mm-hmm. and, um, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And his mother was so-and-so. So it really matters how we train our children. Yeah. It, well, yeah, it does. And that's something we've talked about a lot of times is how it seems like the, the mothers oftentimes 
are named for one of two reasons, either because of the influence they had on the children, which I think is a huge part of it, or because those kings had so many wives, it was their only way of keeping track of who who their kids were. But um, but uh, either either way, though, I think the mothers probably did have the greater influence on the children, at least for their early years. And then later on, I suppose the boys probably got a little more um, input from dad just as, you know, as the patriarchal aspect of things begin to take over and the boys come into manhood and and uh, and begin to live like like their fathers. Verse 13 is um, cool because it says, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, for our wicked trespass, seeing that our God has punished us less than our iniquities deserve and has given us deliverance. Um, God is righteous and we have escaped. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I just that passage was, you know, people say the Old Testament is not full of grace, but it is full of grace. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's kind of where I was going, too, is just that recognition, like you like you said, or like he said been punished far less than they deserve he's definitely recognizing that we got off easy uh we've talked here about how the exile really seems to have been as far as punishments go that was a that was a pretty pretty simple one you know that's like you know are you gonna are you gonna get a spanking or are you gonna have to go spend an hour in mom and dad's room you know Nobody wants to go spend that hour in mom and dad's room, but if you get the choice, I bet you'd probably choose that over over getting, you know, getting smacked on the butt. So realistically speaking, they got off they got off pretty easy considering how much they had they had really ruined things by by the idolatry and the paganism and and uh you know, inviting all those things in. Do you, do you remember where God was saying I was only a little bit angry, but your enemies took it too far. Yeah. And now I'm going to punish them. Do you remember that? Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't remember exactly where it was, but yeah. Yeah, I do remember that because it was like God yeah, God had put he had put some of those those other countries into the position of being being the uh the punishment and they had yeah they had taken it too far they had done it with zeal as i remember is the way the uh, that it put it like they they enjoyed it wasn't that through the exile when they were walking on you know we'll just make a straight path we'll walk on the we won't go anywhere off the beaten path i thought it was somewhere around there maybe i don't know i seem to remember but but it's happened so many times though and Mm -hmm. that's what but then, too, if you go back to, is it 14, that it really, he's kind of giving the whole premise for the future. If we do this, if we do the intermarrying, then there's not going to be a remnant left. Nobody's going to survive. We're not going to survive. Yeah, he's basically asking, are we just going to do this again? Doesn't this seem a little harsh, though? Like, let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. Huh. <laughs> yeah, the way they think these things get worded. I I, I suspected Karen was going to take issue. <laughs> um, I I laugh. I, I laugh not because it's funny though, because because this is uh, I don't know in our in our sensibilities for today, and we try to think of how how women have been treated through through history. 
but, you know, it says put them away. And I don't know entirely what that means, because as we get into chapter 10 on this, you know, the people take Ezra's words to heart and they come and they confess and they say, we need to do this. We need to put these we need to put them away. I don't know entirely what that means, because I don't think I mean, it's not so much like divorce. It's not like ah, they're just on their own now, you know. But then at the same time, I'm thinking back to when Abraham sent uh, Hagar and Ishmael off. I mean, they literally were sent off on their own. So I don't know. Do you think that's what's happening? Are they being excommunicated from the company or are they simply being set into a different position where they're not like 100 percent being treated like wives and children? But I mean, at least my hope, my hope would be that they're still being cared for, but I guess not exactly in the same way as a proper, quote unquote, proper uh, wife and family would be. I don't know. Yeah, if you I mean if you read the list in um if you read the list at the end of chapter 10, like that's a pretty good list of of men mm-hmm. who had married foreign women and it says, I mean the very last verse, all these had married foreign women and some of them had had children by these wives. Mhm. That's a lot of families. It is. You know, it it is, uh, but, you know, you say, use the word families there. Of course, they are families, but I don't get the impression that families, a lot of the times then were the same way as we think of them now. You know, we talk about arranged marriages and, you know, how much interaction did the dads have with the kids? Well, if you read back in Jewish law, they had, they had more interaction with the male children than they did the female children. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And yeah, you know, in our ears, it does, it does come across as harsh, but we've got to remember the purpose of it. The purpose of it is not, you know, it's not just putting these people away. It's, it's preserving, oh, preserving what? It's preserving a culture. It's preserving, it's not even so much preserving the lineage. I don't think it's so much about uh, strictly, you know, ethnicity here. I think it's more about the culture. I think it's more about the religion. It's more about making sure that, that, you know, those laws don't get bastardized again. It's a, it's a, I find it odd that the solution is to bastardize a bunch of children. Well, true. Yeah. Um, Although I get, you have to draw the line, right? If you did something wrong, you have to draw the line and you have to do something. Yeah, at some point you have to cut it. You have to cut things off, uh, because otherwise you end up down in that that same road again. Mm-hmm. And and these uh, these different influences coming in create problems. Um, and so I mean that's really what it is. We have you. We we've got to remember, and our listeners hopefully need to. Well, not hopefully. Our ho- our listeners need to remember too that this is about a bigger picture. It's about something bigger than uh, the families of this. This is about the preservation of a lineage of the Messiah. It's about a preservation of all those laws and and customs that were intended to point to Messiah. That's what this is all about. That ultimately this is all about the salvation of the world. 
And so, yeah, if a few individuals end up having to make some changes that feel uncomfortable to us, then, but for the greater good of the world, and not just the world, I guess, really, when you can consider it, the greater good of the entire universe, really, is kind of at stake with some of this stuff. We've got to got to try to look at it from uh, from a bigger and biggest picture perspective, and set aside some of those personal discomforts that we feel with uh, with what we perceive as I don't know. We would a lot of times think of it as a, 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 a poor treatment. And that's why I say I hope that it isn't just setting them off of their own, cutting them off, no more, you know, no more support at all. I, I would hope that putting them away just kind of means that the relationship changes, but not that they're completely abandoned. Uh, but we don't really give we're not given a very specific picture of what that exa- exactly means. Uh, but yeah, this large group of people. In fact, it is. It's it's such a large group of people. Just, um, I agree. Like it's brutal, and to our, especially to our modern sensibilities, it's horrible. I also think it worked because never again do we read in the scriptures about the marriages that are happening. And mm-hmm. so, from this time forward, Israel is, or the Jewish nation is, loyal to God, and they become legalistic. But they don't worship idols anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that's it. I think it got cut off here. It had to. It had to get cut off. It had to get cut off early, before before it really got set and ingrained back into the culture the way it mm-hmm. had been before. Because, like you say, this is this is the end of it. You just don't see this stuff happening like this again. In everything we read, and with the intermingling of marriage, I never remember them calling them pagans yeah this is the first time i think we've seen that word mm-hmm. yeah which is which is a, a, a brutal it's a harsh word you know and and that's how they name them all they they just start calling them pagans and pagan wives and and their children and i i have in my notes it's i don't think we've seen that before yeah well this i mean how how important it was and how vigilant he was going after it yeah, and I don't know how harsh the word is necessarily. I mean, it basically is just, you know, anybody who's pr- practicing particular religions that aren't following God. Uh, it's a descriptive term, I guess. Um, I guess at times, though, it is seen, seen as sort of a negative connotation. Modern I've day. I've never taken it as a negative. I've always just taken yeah. it as a statement that they follow and worship other gods. Yeah, I think I think so. I think it's one of those terms that you know, has gotten, it's gotten its meaning sort of changed over time because even now we're starting to see that word pagan having less of a negative connotation as we see, you know, uh, people practicing like particularly, uh, Wiccans, I think are, are very particular in adopting that name pagan and they don't, I mean, they don't need necessarily seem to see it as a, as a negative. It's just, Oh, I think they take pride in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, is that good? Is that good or bad? You know, that's right. uh, uh, that's a, in, our yeah, in our day and age. Yeah. Yeah. So but that is the first time I've seen that. I remember seeing the word pagan in the Bible. I'll have to look that up later and see if that if that is. I'll be curious. But, yeah, as we get into chapter 10 towards the end of the book here, then the people do. They confess um, says a very large assembly of men and women and children. 
they say that there's so many people who have adopted this that they're not going to be I, I don't quite understand this they're not going to be able to do it all at once and so they set up uh basically appointments for for the men to come in and uh, i guess be questioned about it it took um, two months yeah yeah be questioned about it and like officially put these women and children away like i said whatever that means obviously it's a separation of some sort i don't quite entirely understand what happens to them uh i mean it's not like it's not like they're killed or anything like that but uh but uh the separation the separation happens and i guess the the really important takeaway of the end of the book is that the assembly of the Israelites or the Jews, uh, I'm not exactly sure what to call them at this point, because I guess they are still, I don't know, there's times they call themselves Israel, but I think we're seeing more and more, they're being called Jews at this point, as they've returned from uh, from from exile. But they've, they have recognized that they need to make this change, they have recognized that they don't want to fall into the same patterns again, and they're taking an active role in making those changes themselves and Ezra is sort of their hold uh, 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 heading heading all this up is their conscience yeah yeah and that's really I mean that's really the that's really the role that Ezra takes when he comes back so there's we've seen all these different reforms of of rebuilding and in this case this seems to be like the most spiritually significant rebuilding that we've seen of the return from exile where it was before it was a lot of you know we need to rebuild the temple we need to rebuild the city we're going to talk about rebuilding the wall but this seems to be more the specific spiritual rebuilding you know let's get it in gear let's get it in order let's be serious about this at this point let's not fall back to that to that old practice that we had before Let's not be bringing in these influences again. Uh, let's try to do, let's let's make sure we're doing what we can to stay true to God. And that is where the book of Ezra finishes off. It's an interesting end to a book. It feels, it feels rather abrupt. But like I was saying before, the book of Nehemiah was once upon a time known as Second Ezra. And so... Um, well, Second Ezra actually had a lot of child support laws in it, so they took that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that is the end of the book of Ezra. Is this uh, is this uh, reform? This uh, this religious reform? This cultural reform? And like Amy said, we don't seem to ever see them falling back into those patterns again, which unfortunately falls in you know has them falling into a severe legalism as we'll get into with the gospels but uh it was still served an important purpose because now it seems like now maybe they finally learned at least that lesson of we can't compromise uh and it's an important one for us to remember too you know as we think of it in terms of marriage if we want to have a fruitful serious marriage we can't really think about trying to join with someone who isn't of our faith. Well, there's uh, that whole do not be unequally yoked thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, a lot of people in the past have taken that as being, uh, and it's kind of disgusting to me, but, um, you know, when they, they start talking about interracial marriages, like <laughs> like pe- people are somehow unequal 
by by their race, which is utterly ridiculous because that's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about, uh, you know, it's talking about having having similar uh, uh, beliefs and values. That's what the unequally yoked is talking about. Don't right. get yourself hooked up with somebody who doesn't share your values, whether uh, whether that is you know, religious values or, or cultural values or whatever. That's an important thing to remember, not just with marriages, but with relationships in general, you know, your, your, your closest friendships, your closest, all your closest relationships, you've got to have, I don't know how you really have close relationships and values that aren't, um, with people who aren't, uh, uh, or, or having a close relationship with people who don't share your values, but, yeah. um, it's always going to pull you in a different direction or have you, at odds or mm -hmm. yeah yeah and so that's sense about something right right and you I, i've never seen marriages in particular of people who are strong christians getting married to people who are not where those well, i shouldn't say never but rarely do you see those marriages happy and fruitful and um doing well and so that's one for our one for us to, I guess, make sure our kids know for sure as they begin to uh, uh, look towards having those relationships. Oh, okay. Well, that is the book of Ezra. Any uh, any other thoughts? No thoughts. No thoughts. Very few thoughts today. <laughs> well, <laughs> your, your brain is broken today, Karen. It's okay. <laughs> mm. and we, we feel bad for you. So next week, we will get into the book of Nehemiah. Uh, and I think we'll probably do the first, uh, we'll try to do about the first six chapters of Nehemiah because that is the story of the rebuilding of the wall. Uh, and it's an interesting story. There's a lot of, there is a lot to be taken away from it, I think, even with our current situation with the, with the Christian church. Like Tracy has said a few times, I. I spoke yesterday in our church about uh, the book of Nehemiah, and I focused largely on that. And I, I see a lot of uh, parallels that we can draw with the modern, modern day church of, you know, specifically the last couple of years with you the book of Nehemiah. Yeah, I think one through six because that's that's the, that's largely focusing on the wall. The rest of the book um, focuses on some some other areas. So so for our our listeners. Uh, be reading chapters 1 through 6 of the book of Nehemiah. And while you're doing that and you're waiting for us, remember you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. Remember you can look us up on Facebook. Uh, make sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family. And make sure that you subscribe to the podcast so that we reach you in your feed each and every week. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.